Good morning and a very warm welcome to my study. Welcome back if you've been here before. Today is Pentecost Sunday when Christians all over the world celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit, which we find recorded in Acts chapter 2. On this day, 2,000 odd years ago, the first followers of Jesus were all gathered together in one place. This was after Jesus had ascended into heaven and they were waiting on his instructions to be filled with power when the Holy Spirit came. In Judaism, and they were all observant Jews, Pentecost celebrates the point in Israel's history where they had escaped slavery in Egypt and come to Mount Sinai. There, amid thunderstorm, fire and earthquake, God gave to Moses the law the very foundation of their faith and of their nation. These rules and observances would mark them out from all the other nations as God's own people. So it's no coincidence that this was precisely, it was precisely as they celebrated this vital moment in their Jewish history that heaven met earth once again in a pivotal way. An earthquake struck and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them amid tongues of fire and the sound of a hurricane wind, and they began to speak in other languages. And at that point, the history of those present and their spiritual descendants right down to us today was changed forever. As Jesus promised in Luke's gospel, they were clothed with power from on high. And just as the first Pentecost created for God a people of the law, so the second Pentecost created for him a people of the Spirit. From that day to this, the power of the Holy Spirit remains the birthright and the visible mark of the Christian. And in case you're wondering when I was going to get round to it, that's precisely where we come in with today's reading from Ephesians. In this series, we're thinking particularly about our identity in Christ. And this passage from chapter 1, 13 to 2, verse 10 are all about our position and power in Jesus. So this is really a highly appropriate reading for Pentecost. Last week, as Jim took us through the opening of the letter, we saw that we're not merely saved from something, we're saved for something. We're saved to be God's children and heirs, holy and blameless in his sight, participants in his cosmic plan to reconcile all things to himself in Christ, to the praise of his glory. Amen. That takes us to the end of verse 12. Now read on. And in fact, Hannah is going to read for us. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? 
according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Thank you, Hannah. This reading, as I hope we shall see, is a tale of three spirits, the Holy Spirit, the human spirit, and the devil. And I think the way I want to approach it this morning is to pick out the references to work and working. So with your permission, I'd like to call this talk, The Way Things Work. I'm going to treat verses 13 to 16 as an introduction, then verses 17 to 21 as speaking about God's work, verses 22 to 27 as regarding the devil's work, and verses 8 to 10 as concerning our work. So the introduction. The first words of verse 13 remind us of the dominant thought of these opening chapters, which is in him. Ephesus was an extremely spiritual place in all the wrong ways. So-called Ephesian letters were powerful magical objects and the cult of Diana dominated the whole atmosphere. The way people thought at that time, there were literally different spheres of influence. The lower region, referred to as the air, was the ones we humans move about in. But there was also at least one higher sphere called the heavens or the sky which was inhabited by powerful beings and gods. So when Paul persists in placing us in Christ, he's in effect saying we no longer live and operate on the same spiritual plane, or at least, at least we don't just operate on the same plane as we once did. Also, when he says you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, he's referring not to some purely internal spiritualized event but as something that was visible and tangible. He's talking about power. Again and again, we read in Acts of new converts, sometimes at conversion, sometimes a bit later, being filled with the Holy Spirit in ways that were plain for everyone to see. 
it might have been evidenced by speaking in tongues or by exercising some other gift of the spirit, or perhaps just by shaking and falling down, as we sometimes see in ministry times today. But the real proof of the event would be in the faith and power of the convert afterwards. The seal on a letter in St. Paul's day showed who had sent it. And in the same way, it should be obvious with those of us who are sealed by the spirit who has sent us. If you think about it in verse 14, anything less than a powerful transforming experience couldn't be called a guarantee of anything. As it is, verse 15, Paul has heard for himself sufficient evidence of their way uh, of life to speak with confidence about the position and power even of those he'd never met. And in fact, the, the fact that he writes to them as one who's only heard of their faith, although he actually spent quite a long time in Ephesus, implies that the church has grown massively since he was there. So work number one, God's work. <clears throat> in this section, Paul goes on to say what he prays for this already high-performing church in Ephesus and the surrounding region. I wonder what we would have prayed in his position. Prosperity, success in mission, strong leaders, an end to persecution. For Paul, the one thing that these spirit-filled active believers needed most is simply a clearer understanding, verses 18 and 19, of our hope, of the high value God places in us, and of the immeasurable power he is sending our way. And notice too that this is a matter of spirit and heart, not head knowledge. They already have the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 17, they need a spirit of wisdom and revelation. It is, verse 18, the eyes of their hearts, not their heads, that need to be enlightened. Now, many of us, um, especially have been kicking around a long time in various different churches, have been taught, it, taught not to trust experience. That experience was in some way unspiritual. And it's true, our experience shouldn't set the limits of our faith. We should, in John Wimber's immortal phrase, teach God's word, not our experience. But I find those who are most uncomfortable with Christian experience are actually those whose own lives exhibit very little power. Draw your own conclusions. The fact is the Bible constantly encourages us to experience God and his power more than we do, not less. And this is precisely what Paul is praying for here. He writes this letter from prison in Rome. His own ministry is therefore constrained. But the ministry of those he's addressing is potentially unlimited if only they, if only we, realised our potential in Christ. I hope you won't think me irreverent if I set you some homework to watch uh, video footage of a Saturn V rocket launching men into space. The power acquired and delivered was colossal. But all that power could do no more than put a living man on the moon. That's a completely insignificant journey compared to the one Jesus had to make. His journey took him from death to eternal life at the right hand of God, far above every name, i.e. beyond any star known and named by man. 
Now that is power. And that same power, verse 19, is available to us, did we but realise it. That is God's work. To quote Wimber again, we get much too concerned about people doing people stuff. We need to concern ourselves with God doing God's stuff. In John chapter 5, Jesus famously says that he can do nothing by himself, but only does what he sees the Father doing. If we put our childlike hand on the saw or hammer or plane that God is using in his workshop, we can be sure of a beautiful result. So what is the Father doing? Work number two, the devil's work. This is from verse 22 to 27. This is something that has to be mentioned, but should only be considered in the light of God's much greater power and love. And that's why I've made my cut for today's study a few verses either side, rather than concentrating on verses one to three alone. In verses 22 and 23, Paul uses a new image to bring home the closeness of God and his work, the availability of his power to his people. At the end of Jesus' ascension journey, with everything now under his feet, i.e. under his control, God gave him as head to the church, which is his body. That means Jesus is committed to working now mainly through us. Sure, he can speak things into being, but he wants to, if he wants to go somewhere, it is our feet that will take him there. If he wants to do something, it is our hands that he will use. This is a sacred trust. Where do my feet go? What do my hands do? As if in answer to these questions, Paul now raises the spectre of the life from which we've all been saved, a life which was really, verse one, spiritual death and decay. A life with no hope, no relationship with God, no power, is hardly worthy of the name at all. Of course, as we all know, life dominated, verse 3, by fulfilling the desires of the sinful body and mind is often presented to us as freedom, freedom to do what we want. But in truth, that's just the devil's work, the oldest con in the book. Read all about it in Genesis 3. Seeking to be free, we're really just getting stuck deeper into the same old rut of this fallen world, unwitting slaves, verse two, of the prince of the powers of the air. And there we are back at those spheres of influence again. The very air we breathe, the planet we live on, says Paul, is under the sway of the devil. So we have an adversary with great power in his own sphere of influence. Mankind gave that power to him when we first chose what he offered over God's guidelines for life. And every time we make a similar choice, we give him power. Those who are still dead in their sins don't even know that they're obeying him. That condition once described us all, says Paul, verse three. That's how we once carried on, thoughtlessly in tune with a world that is completely out of tune with its creator. And this is not a natural condition, says verse two. No, the devil is actively at work 
in all who live that way. He's creating an entire ecosystem where his way is the easy way and God's way sets us at odds with our surroundings. How then can we survive? I wish I had an easy answer, but I don't. All I know is that it must reside somehow in what may be the most powerful two words in the entire Bible, the words that begin verse four, but God. The great Chinese evangelist, Watchman Nee, wisely called Ephesians, sit, walk, stand. His thesis was that in this letter, Paul wants us to think first about where we sit, enthroned with Jesus at the right hand of God, then about how we should therefore walk, i.e. live our lives, and only then come on to how we can stand against all opposition. If we don't understand our position in Christ, the devil's going to flatten us. If our walk is not right, he will trip us up. There's no point in thinking about standing up to the devil if we don't get the sit and walk parts right first. If you noticed, Paul introduced the idea of how we once walked in a negative sense in verse 2, and he's going to begin to reach out into the positive in verse 10. But his principal emphasis for now is still on where we sit in Christ. And miraculously, we see in verse 6, this is right up there with Jesus, even in him. The cost to God, verse 4, was mercy, and his motive force was love. So however we try and work out our answers to life's questions, it's going to have to be with and in Christ. That's why I say the answer lies entirely in the phrase, but God. The devil's work, powerful as it is, can't stop us. And our own work, however good they are, they can't help us. God's work is enough to do it if we all learn to sit still and allow him to do it for us. Third and last, our work. Despite what we just saw about our work not being able to help, we still have work to do. Verses eight and nine stress the futility of anything we can do to save ourselves. They leave us completely reliant on the but God. And yet what's this we see in verse 10? We are intended for good works. The point is, good deeds can never be the means of our salvation. But according to verse 10, they are the purpose of our salvation. Paul's going to come on to the walk and finally the stand from chapter 4 onwards. But for now, verse 10 stands out as a signpost to what is going to come. It serves notice on us that our sitting with Christ in the heavenly places doesn't mean careless idleness in our earthly lives. While heaven remains now and not yet, while the devil still controls so much of this sphere, there is still work to be done. In fact, verse 10 says, we've been fashioned by God in Christ for good works, which he has prepared just for us. We spoke before about God's power being towards us and the seal of the Holy Spirit being seen in the power on display in our lives. Well, this is where these thoughts really come into land. 
this same awesome power that raised Jesus from the dead, not only raised us from spiritual death into new life in Jesus, it's intended to flow out from us into the world in lives that are transformed by the fruit of the Spirit and empowered by his gifts. The Holy Spirit alone can guide us into the good works that God has prepared for us to walk in. And only he can empower us to do what is, after all, really God's work. But if we're alive to his leading as we walk through this wicked world, we will, from time to time, find before us a task for which we are perfectly fitted and empowered. One great saint I know wakes up every morning with the words, Good morning, Lord. What have you been up to while I slept? that I can finish off today. As Demos Shikarian used to say, those who discover their gifting and use it are the happiest people on earth. Here, if anything, Paul goes even further. Not only has each one of us been uniquely gifted by God for specific purposes, but he's actually prepared people and circumstances precisely for our unique and timely input. We are the missing jigsaw piece in each one of these puzzles. All we have to do is walk in them, which means walking in the spirit. But that's another story. Let's pray. Father God, may we who live in the now not yet of your kingdom understand what it means to be sealed with your spirit and sitting in heaven in and with Jesus. May we know your power at work in us. May we see the works of the enemy more clearly for what they are. And may we walk in the good works that you have prepared for us. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>